Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see your glory. Open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts to receive your grace and then open our lips to sing your praise and to bear witness to a hungry world. For your name's sake, amen. Please be seated. Wow, 17 verses in Colossians this week. And if you were tracking carefully, there are probably 17 sermons in that chapter alone. Um, Nancy uh, almost always asks me as I head out the door to head to church on Sunday mornings, do you have just one sermon today? Um, And those of you who uh, preach or teach uh, or have heard lots of preaching and teaching know that uh, that's not an easy task, especially in a passage like this. Um, I think I got it down to 1.3 sermons uh, this morning. You know, we've been, uh, we've been saying week in, week out that Colossians is all about maturity. That's, that's Paul's overarching uh, and clarion call to the people in Colossae and to us. Um, he, he characterized his whole ministry as an effort to, um, a struggle even he called it, to work for the maturing of God's people in this city. Well, this passage gives us a deeper look at what it takes to get there. Um, Paul's vision for the church in in the language of chapter 3 is something like this. He's out to create, through his ministry, a relational community where wisdom flourishes. A relational community where wisdom flourishes flourishes. Wouldn't that be a cool place to live? Wouldn't that be an awesome congregation in which to serve and to live? A relational community where wisdom flourishes. What does that look like? How do we cultivate congregations with such a rich relational culture? Well, uh, there are some early hints in the chapter, and I'm I'm not going to really dwell on these, but at the outset, Paul says it would surely be a culture, a congregation of repentance. You can see that in verses 7 through 10 and in verses 12 through 14. Uh, Paul describes it very picturesquely as a wardrobe change. Yeah, seriously. He's, that wouldn't have struck the Colossians as odd to talk about taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. That's baptismal language because quite literally when you were baptized in the primitive church, in the earliest church, you would strip naked, take off your old clothes. A few centuries after Paul, they even added a, a, another picturesque gesture where you would, you would look towards the west and you would spit. That's the direction of the evil one. And then you would turn towards the sun, the risen Christ, and you would profess your faith. And then you would be immersed in a flowing stream of living water. Well, Paul says, with that kind of baptismal imagery in his mind, put off those qualities that damage relationships. He starts off by talking about things like sexual immorality and impurity, but then he, then he gets into the stuff that we, you know, we, we have an easy time talking about those. We seriously do. I mean, a lot of us are here in this congregation and in this movement called the Anglican Church in North America because we're clear what we wanted to put off in terms of those behaviors and those false teachings. But 
Paul says it's not just about that stuff. It's also about the way we talk. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. More congregations would be healthier if they would slow down and think seriously about the way they do communication. I don't don't mean public communication. I mean internal, mutual communication. How we talk to each other and about each other. I can tell you, hands down, in almost 40 years of ministry, I have been more plagued, less plagued by crisis, though crises aplenty there have been, but more disturbed by shabby and sloppy language. Gossip, backbiting, rumor-mongering, picking at each other. Paul says, put all that off. And put on, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. I mean, they're like eight sermons there. There's a wonderful prayer that uh, I discovered um, almost by accident several years ago. It's uh, it's from a colleague in Nashville, Tennessee. His name's Scotty Smith. And um, it's called A Prayer About Eggshell Walking. Okay? Kind of cheeky, but just listen to this prayer. It's based on Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Lord Jesus, I don't think there's any passage in any translation of the Old and New Testament that uses the image of walking on eggshells, but it's surely a part of the way we broken sinners do relationship with one another. And just as surely there is grace for this. And for every other soul-sucking, emotion-draining, crazy-making relational dance. So here's my prayer, Jesus. As someone chosen, holy, and dearly loved by you, help me not to be the kind of person that makes people feel the need to tippy-toe around me so darn delicately. What's with that anyway? Through the resources of gospel, help me to own and deal with my insecurities, Fears and anger. Are you praying with me, anybody? Help me to realize when unnamed and undealt with issues in my heart render me a minefield of explosives just waiting to go off if someone gets too close. Help me to experience your acceptance, your love, and your delight afresh so that I move from fragility to freedom. Please, Lord. Really, what can mere people do to me anyway? Help me to take back some of the power over my heart I have unwittingly given to people, a power no person deserves. And here's the other part of my prayer, Jesus. Help me constantly to be putting on the garments of grace, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, so that I don't live hostage to the minefield or egg ranch that others have become. How can I possibly care for someone in a healthy way when I do-si-do around them in my stocking feet? That fragile two-step says as much about me as it does the very people I'm relating to in such a broken way. Jesus, help me to see people with your eyes and love them with your love. Jesus, increasingly we long for the day when we will be made completely whole and healthy and every one of our relationships reflects the joy, peace, intimacy, and perfect unity of the Trinity. Until that day, give more grace to these fragile hearts of ours. Amen. I'll, um, I'll make this available later in the week if you'd like to keep praying it. Prayer for eggshell walking. John Stott prayed for the same stuff every day of his life. 
some of you may have, if you've spent any time reading Stott, you probably will have bumped into this reminder that every morning he began the same way for decades. He just rolled out of his bed to his knees, and there on the floor prayed, Good morning, Heavenly Father, creator of the universe. Good morning, Lord Jesus, Savior of the world. Good morning, Holy Spirit, sanctifier, new life giver. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, good morning. And then he prayed, Lord, give me, and he ticked off the nine fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, which are just echoed here in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. He prayed every morning the same prayer because he knew that that was the only hope he had of becoming mature. Well, a culture of repentance is is what that is. Putting off, putting on. That certainly is an essential pathway to becoming a relational community where wisdom flourishes. Um, It would also be a culture of peace. Verse 15 says, Christ's forgiveness is the basis of our ability to forgive and live in peace. Forgiving. I hope we model that for our kids as parents. Asking their forgiveness when we blow it as we do. A culture of inclusion, verse 11. It was sorely tempting this week in the wake of all the shootings, the new shootings. What are we up to? Almost 300 this year so far. It was sorely tempting to preach on verse 11 alone. It's certainly and I'm not, this is not a political statement. This is a theological statement. This is a, this is a Jesus statement. This is a Colossians 3 statement. It's time for the church to speak an unmistakable word against white nationalism and white supremacy. That's just true. We need to name the lies and say them out loud. Okay, but now here's the sermon. Paul calls us to be a relational community where wisdom flourishes. And verse 16 is the capstone verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Every week we stand to our feet, on our feet, right after the sermon, and we confess, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Verse 16 sums up briefly and precisely what apostolic means. The apostolic church is the church in which the apostolic word, the word from the apostles, dwells and works and sings. Well, what does that look like? Well, it's a culture where the word dwells. That's a a rich word that Paul chooses in verse 16. A culture rich in the gospel. Everywhere you turn, people speaking the words of Christ. Wisdom will surely rise there, Paul promises, because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to live in a relational culture where wisdom flourishes, then there is no getting around the fact that we need to speak Jesus and speak gospel to each other all the time in all kinds of ways. Not just with words, but surely with words, but also, well, we'll get there. It's a word spoken by Christ and a word about Christ. All the truth revealed and now written concerning him. 
Already we heard it in chapter 1, verse 5, that the word of the truth, the gospel, is bearing fruit among you, Colossians, and all over the world. Christ is the author, Christ is the focus. In Luke 24, Jesus says, it's all about me. The whole Bible, it's all about me. So we need to be teaching about Christ, telling gospel stories, being so at home in the gospel story and letting it be at home in us so that we will always be, it'll always be ready for us. Jesus said to his disciples um, after the resurrection, um, the Holy Spirit will come down to you and will remind you of everything I've said. Well, they had to have learned it in the first place to be reminded of it. That's a picture of what it means for the word to dwell richly in us. We, we become so at home in the good news of Jesus, so at home in the stories of the faith, that they just come out of us. They course through our memories and our hearts. Where the word of Christ is, where the apostolic word is, there the apostolic church is. There the sheep of God's pasture hear the voice of the good shepherd and are united by that verse. Let the word take ownership of your home, your heart, your lives is the invitation. Psalm 119 says it, I have stored up your word in my heart. That's what Mary was doing after the angel announced that she would give birth to Jesus. Delight in the word. Do you delight in the word or do you take it for granted? Do you read it off in prosaic, dull fashion? Or does it, do, you, do you get excited when you dip into the word, when you dive into the word? My favorite passage uh, to describe this delight in the word uh, that Paul's talking about is in Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear. That's Jesus doing the waking up. Morning by morning, he wakens my ear to hear as one who is taught. In the threshold of the tiny little church in Germany where I interned as a seminary student, there was a, a, a beautiful sculpture of, of an old man with one his head cocked to one side and his hand to his ear. And Isaiah 50, verse 4, was written on the pedestal of the sculpture. It was this beautiful representation of what it means for the word to dwell richly among us. It's, it's to be like that, ears cocked to hear every morning what the Lord has to say to us. Jeremiah 25 says that every morning for 23 years, every morning for 23 years, the word of the Lord came to me. Let the word enter into you. Let it remain there. Let it be your most familiar friend. Let it make you wise. Let it dwell in you richly. Well, that's a picture of a church that is, that is well stocked with good teaching, a palace filled with treasures. Grant the word of Christ the highest priority of place in your individual life and in the corporate life of the church. Let the word be preached, proclaimed, portrayed in images, explained, applied, taught, memorized, known, obeyed, 
eaten, the prophets say, experienced in all its glory and beauty and richness. Give it full sway. Let, it, let its intrinsic power and splendor do its work in and for you. That's anything but a congregation whose ethos is just a vibe or an aesthetic. You've encountered churches like that. They just, they got a good vibe. It's, it kind of feels cool to be there, but there's no depth. There's no richness of the word dwelling there. So this kind of relational culture where wisdom flourishes is, is a culture where the word dwells and where the word works. People together, not just in worship, but in small settings, home groups and other kinds of study groups and fellowship groups where they speak the word of Christ into each other's lives teaching and admonishing one another. You know, back in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul said that his ministry was this. We proclaim Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And now, in verse 16 of chapter 3, he's giving that same task to everyone in the congregation. In other words, your spiritual growth and maturing are my responsibility, and mine is your responsibility. So we should be seeking to grow in our knowledge of God's word so we can fulfill this duty of teaching and admonishing one another. You know, it's like the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says to, look at, he looks, says to his friends, he said, okay, this means you. People going to get fed? Get out there. I'll give you the bread. You feed the people. Remember, all this happens in a deeply relational culture. It's all about serving others rather than self. Teaching, telling your experiences regularly to one another with the word, telling how the scriptures have opened up for you, telling each other, reporting to each other happily what promises God has kept this week. Why keep that to yourselves? Communicating to those around you what you've received by sharing it with brothers and sisters and with your children. It's as if you gave it back to God. Your life becomes a hymn of thanksgiving. Uh, Quite literally, it becomes a hymn of thanksgiving. Because a relational culture where wisdom flourishes is not just a, a culture where the word dwells or where the word works through people sharing the word with each other, but it's a culture where the word sings. This is for you, Kendra. This is for all the rest of you who make music and lead us in song. A relational culture marked by singing. Songs from the heart in graceful response to God's grace. Simply put, where the word dwells richly, there will be singing. Inevitably, unavoidably, Worship sings. Singing is our own high and holy apostolic task, one of my teachers said. Eugene Peterson wrote, Neither God nor the church cares whether you sing well or not, but God cares whether you sing with thankfulness in your heart or not. I mean, think about the witness of God's story in Scripture. Moses sings. Miriam sings. Deborah, a judge, sings. 
David surely sings. Mary sings. The angels sing. Jesus and the disciples sing. Even in prison, Paul and Silas sing. When men and women of faith become aware of who God is and what God has done and is doing and will do, when they become aware of who they are in Christ, they sing. So a relational culture that gives rise to wisdom is a culture that sings from the heart. Paul says, as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that is to say, with all the variety and richness of the songs of the ages. Psalms. We need to recover the singing of psalms. Hymns. Hymns like the Magnificat, the Benedictus. Hymns like Philippians 2. They're all over scripture. And they've inspired hymn writers of every time and place and age. Spiritual songs. The kind of spontaneous utterances of the heart that just flow out of us. But singing isn't just about mood. A ministry of teaching and admonition is part of a life of thankfulness that overflows into song. We're singing truth, after all. Truth about Christ. Truth about ourselves. Singing isn't the sole or solitary means of teaching, but it is a powerful means of implanting and clarifying truth. That's literally what's at stake when we sing. We're ministering to each other. We're preaching to each other. We're teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's not just a mood moment. It's not just a feel-good pause. It's word dwelling richly in us. Teaching and admonishing one another in the context of worship through singing directed to God. Songs serve to admonish members of the community. They serve a corrective function. They reorient us to praise and thanksgiving to God. Finally, a culture, a relational culture where wisdom flourishes, Paul wraps it all up by saying, is a culture of thanksgiving. Have you ever noticed, have you noticed already just this summer in these passages from Colossians, how often Paul encourages the Colossians to thankfulness? He doesn't say, uh, remember, you ought to be thankful and then pass on to other things. He doesn't, says, he doesn't say just feel thankful. He writes, be thankful. Chapter one, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to joyfully give thanks to the Father for all of that. The next chapter. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, abounding in thanksgiving. Nothing puny here. Nothing meager. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful today, verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, verse 16. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, verse 17. The 
doesn't mean we should view all things as good in themselves, but we are to thank God for how he uses everything to make us more like Jesus. A relational culture where wisdom flourishes is a culture pervasively conscious of Jesus, leaning on him and making much of him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just take a moment in silence. We don't need to rush to our feet quite yet. Just in prayer to the Lord Jesus, thank him for his word. And let it dwell in you richly for a moment.